This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2020. From Luminary and Vilted Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Jeff Jones, president and CEO of H&R Block. It's about transparency. It's about trust. It's about speed, uh, sharing of information. And so even when it's a hard message, I've just found the more I can say it and people can hear it directly, it's really the only thing I know how to do. How a young man from West Virginia named Jeff Jones went from being an ad guy to the CEO of one of America's top tax prep companies. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Jeff Jones knows crisis. He was a top executive at Target during the 2013 data breach. He was the president of Uber during a tumultuous period that would end with the departure of its founder. And today, he's the head of H&R Block, the biggest tax preparation company in the U.S., right in the middle of a global economic meltdown. This is a moment in history that will test every single leader. And Jeff Jones says... How leaders respond will also be the measure by which they are judged in the future. Jeff never intended to run a Fortune 1000 company. At the beginning, he was an ad guy. He grew up in West Virginia. Both of his parents ran a variety of small businesses. At one point, restaurants, tanning salons, even a nightclub with a lighted dance floor and mechanical bull. And when Jeff was a junior in high school... His parents lost everything. Their business went bankrupt, and they struggled to get back on their feet. They scrapped and borrowed some money from friends, and that's when they relaunched into this uh, video rental business and actually built a little chain of stores in West Virginia and in Ohio. Um, My dad got to the point several years into that where he sold the business, and it's a really tragic story because He sold business to a friend, uh, did classic owner financing of the business, and that person uh, really struggled in ownership and committed suicide. And my parents got the business back after it had almost been run into the ground. And so then they had to kind of pick themselves up again and ultimately over, uh, you know, a, a few years were able to sell off pieces and parts and 
finally left with one one store and then they were finally able to sell that one store as well wow so i mean from an early age you learned the ups and downs of i sure did of what it means to to run a business yeah absolutely yeah which must have i guess in, in a sense and unbeknownst to you at the time prepared you for a life of the inevitable ups and downs in the business world. So you you went on to the University of Dayton um, in Ohio where you studied communications. Um, what, what was your thinking that that you would kind of like be a, a comms guy or an ad guy? You know, it was. I had an internship every single year of college or work every summer between colleges. And I developed this passion for advertising because it was this combination of business, psychology, human behavior. But because of where I grew up, I was terrified of going to New York, which is where everyone thought they had to go to work in advertising. I was afraid of the big city. So I set my sights on Chicago and the biggest and best firm there called Leo Burnett. And uh, I started applying in college and just kept getting rejection letter after rejection letter. I literally put all of them on my mirror in college and wrote, do not quit on them. I still have those letters, by the way. Wow. I still have all of them. I kept that folder. Wow. Good for you. Oh, it's amazing to look back. I, I, I moved to Chicago without a job, and I basically knocked on the door of Leo Burnett so much they gave me an informational interview, and I'll never forget it. The guy that interviewed me sat in his chair in a rocking chair, had plaid pants, and he said, I have basically two questions for you. The first question is, Tell me about the last time somebody said to you, that's a great idea. And I gave him an example and he said, give me another. And I gave him an example and he said, give me another. And he just kept saying, give me another until I was exhausted. And he said, the point of that is, this is an idea business. And I just wanted to see how vulnerable you would be with sharing bad ideas. Hmm. He said, my second question is, tell me about a product that does not exist, but should exist. And I have no idea on the spot. I said, fingernail clippers that catch your fingernails. (laughs) And uh, I got hired by Leo Burnett after that interview and then was immediately moved uh, to Detroit to start my career. And did you like it? Was that, I mean, was it interesting work? It was very interesting work. You know, you're, you're given original problems all the time. You are hired to be original all the time. By definition, there's no scale in the idea business. And I loved it. And you asked me this question, and it's actually really important the way you said it to me. I was working on the P&G business as an account guy. And there was a very Procter senior- and Gamble. Exactly, Procter and Gamble. And there was a very senior person there who pulled me aside one day and said, do you want to be an ad guy or do you want to be a marketer? And it was a really important moment in my career because she helped me think about the difference between those two things. And that conversation prompted me to leave Leo Burnett to join the Coca-Cola company in my first job as a corporate marketer. Wow. So you go you go off to Coca-Cola um, and you sort of begin to, to transition from, quote unquote, being an ad guy to learning about marketing. Um, and... What, what was the difference? What, what did you re- realize the difference was? You know, I think there's a few differences. Of course, there's the difference of being in an agency versus being in a corporate environment and all the differences that come with that. 
Um, but I think the biggest difference is just the breadth of what marketing really means when you step back and think about pricing strategy, product development, distribution, and then marketing communications as the advertising piece. But, you know, suddenly you're thinking about all the different ways to, at Coca-Cola, we were trained by Sergio Zeman. He said, to get more people to buy more of your stuff, more of the time at higher prices. Hmm. And that's literally how the Coca-Cola marketers were taught in the mid nineties. Uh, presumably that's changed, that, that approach has changed today. It would have to have changed. <laughs> yeah. No <laughs> yeah, doubt. Right. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know that you were at, at Coke for a couple of years and then you got recruited back to Leo Burnett, um, where you stayed and then you helped them for a few years, but then you, you kind of take a big leap into the corporate world. Um, in 2004, you were, I guess you were recruited to become the, the CMO at Gap. And uh, this was at a time when Gap was kind of struggling a little bit, right? I mean, it was sort of, I don't know, trying to, to get its bearings back. Yeah. I think it was the beginning of what's become now a you know decade plus long um, struggle for the company. And I was there. I was uh, working in the Gap brand uh, as the chief marketing officer, part of an entirely new leadership team that was brought in. And in about two years, that entire leadership team, including me, was either fired or given new jobs. So here I am now in San Francisco, chief marketing officer for the Gap, and the wow. entire team I joined has been blown up. And so now it's time to change chapters again. <laughs> Thank goodness I had these parents we talked about earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, the Gap is a clean and simple, you know, right. classic American apparel brand, um, but obviously struggled and continues to struggle and, and, uh, and in this new current climate probably will struggle even more. Um, what what was your sort of mandate? I mean, your mandate presumably was to, to you know, kind of reignite the, the brand. How were you thinking about doing that through through marketing? What was your what was your strategy going to be? It's interesting that you know the the challenge is always growth, and then how do you drive growth? And you know in that case we thought it it's a lot about relevance of the brand, contemporary relevance. I traveled all over the world, and I always had people say to me, "Oh, I love Gap. I remember when," and it was always a story of the past. So, you know, great kind of latent built up love, but no current purchase. Yeah. And one of the things that, that I believed and ultimately the team believed was Gap, Gap's problem wasn't you needed better advertising. So it's not a marketing communications problem. It's a product relevance problem and a retail experience problem. Hmm. And we took a very, very bold step in my tenure there. Denver, Colorado was a particular market where we closed every single Gap store. We remodeled wow. every single Gap store, retrained every associate, and relaunched the brand based on an entirely new shopping experience. Many of those ideas live on today, but we just believed that we couldn't advertise our way out of the problem. Everyone knew Gap. But if our physical experience didn't get better and more compelling, we didn't have a chance. So even though what we did in Denver, you know, in quotes worked, meaning it drove more traffic and more sales, it wasn't possible to replicate other places too expensive. 
That combined with the portfolio in Gap Inc. of brands like Old Navy really competing for the same family, same customer, you know, it just became clear that there was a portfolio positioning challenge and a cost model at Gap that we just couldn't overcome. Yeah. I mean, it's it sounds like, and we're talking 2004, 2006, right? It That's sounds right. like, um, I, I think I'm foreshadowing a bit, that you were really uh, observing and, and kind of absorbing the lessons that, that you were being exposed to, that you, you could sort of see that there were some really good ideas on the table, but for some reason they weren't working, and you were, you were already starting to try and figure out why that was the case. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. And like any problem, and I think in retail especially, you have product, you have relevance, you have physical, you have digital. There's a lot of dynamics. There's usually not one thing. Um, and so we tried a very holistic approach, but again, it just, it was too expensive to scale. And then that started becoming a, a, you know, we're cutting back what we're doing and, you know, Paul Pressler left the company and a series Mm -hmm. of management turnovers once again. You, you would uh, eventually leave as well. What did, what was the biggest takeaway from your time at Gap? What was the lesson that you feel like you, you learned from there that you would be able to apply in the future? There's no question, you know, it, it's this whole idea about how important it, especially in those cases, you have to make big changes. And if you don't make big changes, then the people that are making the change feel like you're doing a lot, but the consumer doesn't notice. Yeah. You know, it's as the, as the creator of change, people are terrified to do things in a big, bold, dramatic way. But if you don't do that, the consumer doesn't notice anything's different. Hmm. And the, if the consumer doesn't notice, it's it's like a tree falling in a forest with with no one no one around, right? It's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. We learned this very very clearly at Target. Well, let's let's talk about Target. I know we're we're, we're missing a big a gap of, <laughs> of time here, but um, let let I mean, let's talk about Target because you yeah. would you would eventually go on to join Target and become the chief marketing officer there, um, which was a you were there at a, a very you know interesting and dramatic time. So so yeah, tell us the story. Well, you interesting and dramatic. There's no question. Was was my era at, at at Target? And you moved to Minneapolis. I moved to Minneapolis. That's right. Got it. And you know, at Target, I helped us navigate through the data breach, uh, closing down a failed Canadian expansion, mm-hmm. uh, a very traumatic time that, in hindsight, seems small, but not at the moment, where we had a lot of issues with people thinking. You could bring your uh, assault weapons to a Target store. That created a major mm. crisis. The transgender bathroom uh, topic, which became a major crisis for the company. So navigating through really big crises at a very, very big company. Hmm. But we were also transforming. We were digitizing the business. We were changing physical retail. And the story is, if you've been in a Target store, you know when you walk in, there's a place at the beginning of the store that that Target calls Bullseye's Playground. Mm-hmm. And this is a place where all moms and families stop. It's, you know, inexpensive items and lots of things yep. that kids love. That right area when you that, come in, yep. Correct, yep. right when you come in. And that area of the store needed to reinvent it. It was not performing like it should. 
So, you know, big companies do what they do, teams are dedicated, we study the problem, all kinds of ideas. And the basic idea was we're going to turn the gondolas so all the shelves go from 90 degree angles to 45 degree angles. And this will change the shopping pattern, it will feel new and fresh when you walk in. Got it. And we ch we changed the product a bit, but the point of all this is teams are sweating and grinding over this massive yeah. change we're going to make. Yeah. yeah. And I remember coming home to my wife who was, you know, in Target almost every day saying, what'd you think? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, did you notice <laughs> Like, when you walk in the Bullseye's Playground, we just, we changed everything. He's oh, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And it was that reminder that all the energy that went into making this change, nobody noticed. Yeah. And then we literally said, now let's reinvent it. We rebranded at Bullseye's Playground. We put incredible merchandising of Bullseye the Dog everywhere. We changed the product assortment. And now it was an entirely new experience that the consumer noticed and performance completely changed. It's, it's so interesting because so many businesses, right? This is a story that I'm sure everyone listening can relate to. Teams gather around and there's arguments and there's conversations and intense discussions and then it's agreed after weeks and weeks that we're going to move the, <laughs> the shelving units by 40 to 45 degree angles and then no one notices, right? Correct. And it's it's a little bit like what happened at Gap, which is there was all this discussion and effort and uh, with the, you know, revamping the stores and, and, and whatever. Customers didn't really notice the changes, right? And, and it sounds like that didn't really move the needle. What you had to do was actually put better, cooler products in there and promote it, let people know that this was a thing. Correct. And to Target's credit, that was the beginning of the massive investment they've made. And I've lost track now, but it's in the ballpark of, you know, five to $10 billion investing back in physical stores. And they took a holistic approach. The changes have been dramatic and their business has been on fire. And so that's actually a really good example of big, bold change and understanding your customer and how it can work. Hmm. I mean, you know, Target is is managed to kind of be the cool big box store, right? Like there's obviously Walmart and there's, um, you know, competitors out there, but Target is the, you know, it's got the, you know, the different product lines from kind of cool and interesting designers. And it's got um, the, the layout of the store is very clear and, and um, straightforward. When you got there and you started to make these changes, I guess, uh, I mean, what was going on? Like, it, it was kind of in a, a weird place, right? I mean, Target was not performing as, as well as it should have been. That's right. That's right. You know, I joined at the beginning of an era when most of the things Target sold were exactly what you said interesting, cool, what we call differentiated products. But they're not things you buy every day. Mm. And so in order to solve the business problem of getting more frequency, Target made the decision to move into grocery and more household items. Yeah, right. And when it did that, you're now competing with an entirely different set of stores and in simple terms, what we, what we said and what we recognized was we were trying to be somebody else instead of being a better target. And the whole idea of expect more, pay less is who target is. 
but we were in an era where we had forgotten that, the data breach caused all kinds of reflection. Mm. And that company did not waste that crisis, you know, to use the expression, yeah. and rethought of everything. And in that moment, in crisis, in the data breach, uh, we get a new CEO, Brian Cornell, who's there now. Yep. And we yep. said, we have to get back to who we are at our best. And since that moment, Brian has led that company to, to execute that incredibly well. He was on the show last season. Um, I want to talk about the data breach. Um, this is, at the time, the, I think one of the largest d- data breaches in, in corporate history. Um, and you were sort of asked to kind of co-lead uh, right. you know, the recovery with the with company's chief legal, legal counsel. Um, and it was a huge problem for Target um, and I'm sure a crisis um, moment. And at that time, there was an article, I think it was in Gawker or something, and it was a quoted an anonymously quoted a Target employee uh, from, from corporate headquarters who was really kind of criticizing the company's um, response. And you actually wrote a blog post um, on Link, I think on LinkedIn called, I think it was called Truth Hurts. That's right. Where you were just really just kind of like, this is what we, this is what's going on. Uh, this is really, it's bad. And we're going to try and make this right. What was that uh, like a planned thing? Did you have like big discussions with your team about doing this? Was it? uh, Tell me about that response. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It gives me chills thinking about um, about that moment. I mean, it's really hard to describe what it was like at Target at that moment because it wasn't the biggest data breach ever but it quickly became the most well-known data breach. And people were furious at the company. And again, because of Target's connection to its guest, it hit home in a very personal way. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. 
The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Every day on the news, the headlines every single night was Target won't recover, Target's dead, the stock was getting decimated, the CEO was fired, most of the leadership team ultimately was fired. I mean, it was absolute hair on fire panic every day. And there was a moment where we were in between CEOs and myself and a couple other colleagues were kind of brought together to, you know, co-lead the company through this. And when that article was written, and keep in mind in that day, every single day was a media crisis. I bet, yeah. I literally went home that night. This is no exaggeration. I sat down with my laptop and in almost kind of without lifting my fingers off the keys, just wrote that response. And I sent it to our head of communications and we just said, we have to publish it. Hmm. And that was it. And, uh, and for people who haven't read it, tell, tell us what you wrote. Well, it, it, I titled it The Truth Hurts. I acknowledged uh, this uh, person who had written this, this anonymous post. And it was really much who I was and who I am as a leader. I was known that way at Target. You know, I just think you have to talk about the things that he talked about. And so I credited this person for having the courage, even though I didn't like they did it anonymously, to raise the things that were front and center the company had to deal with. And I said, we will. And, oh my gosh, if I would have known how that would have landed in the world, I probably would have been too afraid to write it. (laughs) Because literally within 48 hours, every major news outlet on the planet wanted me to sit down and talk about it. And I didn't do it. And it was also an important moment where I wanted to have a conversation with this person. We obviously did it in a public way, but this, this wasn't about me. I, wasn't tr- I didn't want this to become its own story. And so I refused to talk publicly about it. I turned down all the interviews to, to share the story. But it was a real seminal moment in the turnaround of the data breach because I think what it was able to do internally was to give people the confidence that we weren't going to hide from the truth. And as a leadership team, we knew there were things that had to change and we were committed to changing them. That it was essentially an acknowledgement of an internal failure and an acknowledgement of we're going to make this right. That's right. That's exactly right. Which is difficult to do in a crisis. <laughs> yeah, but 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 important, crucial. It, it's it's actually amazing to me that more leaders don't do this in crises. That they, well, they don't just come out very quickly and and just kind of surrender and say, "This is a mistake. This is a problem. We're going to make this right." But right now, let's we got to figure out what's going on, and we're going to do everything to make it right. But you know, we screwed up. That's right. I think crisis at Target really set in motion for corporate America a different way to think about 
the crisis response playbook. Hmm. Um, and you know, when when you're in that moment, and anybody who's in or been through crises know, in the data breach, myself and my colleague were living in the middle of this triangle. One side was、uh, litigation. One side was investigation, and one side was communication, and that is what describes what happens in crises. Your instinct is to communicate, but you don't always know the facts in real time what's actually happening, and your attorneys, you know, rightfully so, are protecting you, saying if you say that, that means this. And I think that's why companies get stuck is because there's not a healthy tension on all three sides of that triangle, and one side wins, and as a result, leaders get get talked out of saying what they believe needs to be said. I know we could we could talk about Target for forever and ever, and there's so many、um, lessons that we can take from that experience. But I want to get to Uber because I know that in 2016 you met Travis Kalanick at. At the TED conference in Vancouver, I was there too. I remember that TED conference, and you, you were just, I guess, meeting him and just chatting with him and, and kind of giving him some informal advice about ways the company could, you know, kind of think of, you know, reestablishing itself because it was already getting hammered by customers, consumers, by drivers. There were a lot of stories about the corporate culture there that were kind of toxic, and I, I guess that meeting at, at, at TED impressed them, and they. Kind of recruited you. They asked you to come and be the president of the company, which you accepted because it was an interesting opportunity. Like, what? Tell me what you were thinking about that. Why you were thinking about about that opportunity in that way? Well, it was after about six months of spending a lot of time with Travis. It did. It did begin at Vancouver、uh, after he gave his TED talk. If you remember、uh, that talk.、Yep. And ultimately, the decision for me was: you have an opportunity to lead one of the most most important companies in history, with a really clear purpose about what transportation can do to cities all around the world, and be in the epicenter of the future. And、yeah. for everything that I loved and still love about Target, that was an opportunity I viewed to be、um, something I couldn't say no to. But it didn't start out as a job opportunity. It started out just kind of informally, correct? Advising, yeah, that's right. They were. Can I just? Can I just ask you about th- this for a sec? Because, because I do want. We're going to talk about your time at Uber, but I don't know、uh, Travis personally,、um, and I I think Uber and what he created is an, obviously an incredible idea and product. But、um, I remember that TED talk. I've seen him, you know, interviewed in public forums and. He may personally be a a lovely person. I don't know. I don't know him, but he he really comes across,、um, to me at least, as a kind of leader I would not want to work for. When I see him, when I've seen him speak publicly before he left Uber, he's been quiet since. Obviously, that there was a kind of just a an arrogance and a hostility to simple things like you know regulation, for example. But but in a very、um, in a way that. I, I don't know. I, I don't often see in other corporate leaders. You know, I, I, I and so I wonder if you if you felt that way, or did, I mean, I don't know. Was he different personally? Because if I was 
being recruited to work for the company, I don't know if I'd want to do it simply by by my experience watching him in public. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great it's a great point, a great comment. I look back on my decision and ask myself the same thing sometimes. But there's no question he is one of the most brilliant people that I've ever had the chance to know. Uh, he is definitely not perfect. Um, none of us are. He had such a clear no. view of the world and the role that Uber could play in changing the world. And when I ultimately decided to join, again, it was after many months of spending time together, I knew that I was coming to help him and the company, uh, in quotes, grow up, to mature, to bring a level of, you know, I don't think, and I don't want to obviously try to guess how Travis would say it, but I don't think Travis would view himself as a corporate leader. In fact, right. you know, I was the corporate guy coming in. Right. But the mission and the scale and the importance and the role of technology um, was just too much for me to say no to. And I do not regret my decision to go. I don't, I don't look back with regrets at all. But obviously, months in, I decided that it was the wrong place for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. Going to work for a company like Uber was going to be a hugely exciting opportunity because of what Uber is. Um, and a lot of really smart people came in. I mean, yes. a lot of them came in to help out because for that very reason, that this was an opportunity to help this incredible company grow up and actually operate in a, in a way that, you know, big companies need to operate. Um, you were not able to kind of do what you were used to doing as a leader there because you were you were out of there I think in six months with many many other leaders who joined um, it was it as simple as that I mean was it for you you just thought you know my values just don't align with what I'm seeing here or I'm not able to apply my you know everything I know about leadership here what what was your experience like yeah I mean you just you just summarized really what was on my mind but you know it it was by far by far one of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my life. Hmm. And, you know, to, for, despite the, the kind of situations that I've put myself in and the change that I've driven and dealt with, here I was having just left what most people would believe is one of the best jobs on the planet to jump into this situation and try to make a difference. I'm now commuting back and forth to San Francisco, but in theory, I'm all over the world all the time. My family's yeah. still in Minneapolis. And I recognize that I'm not able to make the change I'm brought there to make. But you can't just quit. And so you find new ways and you try new things. But the pace, you know, one week at Uber is like a year at most companies. <laughs> the absolute pace and change that happens that quickly and so while six months is a very short amount of time, it wasn't without a lot of effort to try to make things different. But you reach right. a point where you realize that um, you've made a bad decision. It's the wrong place for you. It doesn't mean it's the wrong place for other people. And I did everything I could to leave there by making it clear it was about values. Um. But the last thing the company needed at that moment in time was the president of the company leaving. Yeah. But I knew I had to do it, and so I did it. 
Um, but my gosh, it was one of the most heart wrenching and gut wrenching, you know, decisions I've ever made in my life. Travis would leave uh, shortly after you left um, under pressure from the board. But as president, what what could you what what did you want to do that you just couldn't do? Because you know, from the outside, you think that you're the president. You've got a lot of power. Yeah, I mean the the basic thing that I believed, and keep in mind, I was only ride sharing, so I was not responsible for all the other business units that that mm-hmm. now exist. But it right. was re- it was really clear that the company needed to do two big things. Number one was we had to repair a relationship with the drivers. And number two is we had to stop prioritizing growth at all costs, both reputationally and economically. And so that became really my platform. How do we make more decisions to grow at a pace that allows the company ultimately to make money? And how do we take steps to repair our relationship with the drivers who had become incredibly you know, disenchanted with, with what Uber was about? And those, you know, ultimately, you know, we were not able to do as successfully as I, as I wanted. And you add on to that the other businesses and the importance of safety and, you know, all the other things that they're working through. So you uh, obviously lasted about six months there. Um, and and I think immediately after you stepped down, you were you were just recruited left and right by a bunch of different companies and eventually settled on, uh, decided to go to H&R Block in Kansas City, where you are now the CEO. This is your first um, executive post. This is your first post as CEO um, of, a, of a company, of a big company. Um, I'm right about that, right? That's right. First time public CEO. Um, and I've been to Kansas City, and it's a great place, super cool downtown, awesome community, H&R Block, obviously one of the pillars of... Kansas City. Um, most people think of H and R Block as a you know right as like your tax preparer. You go there once a year and you use it, and then uh, or you do it online, and and that's it. Um, when you got to H and R Block, um, is that sort of initially how you thought of it as well? Without question, um, I was recruited from the outside. I'm not a tax guy. I'm not a financial services guy. I joke with many people that when I first got the call, I said. I have a really common name. Are you sure you got the right Jeff Jones? <laughs> you know, I, I thought for sure I would be staying in Silicon Valley. And so I, I, from the outside, just looked at this company and saw an incredible brand, well-known, highly trusted, and not a financial crisis, you know, for a company our size, an incredibly profitable company. And what I described was a crisis of relevance. And what that means and and continues to mean is we have to improve the quality of what we do, we have to deliver better value, and we have to be way more digitally modern in every part of the business. So how do you make H&R Block something different, more relevant? Um, What is it about H&R Block that gives it, you know, um, you know, makes it more interesting or, or, or something that that you know better value proposition than any other tax preparation service yeah it's a great question and one we ask ourselves a lot you know when i first got here who are we how do we get here why are we here and what role do we play in the world and 
What became really clear to me after all the things you would expect a new leader to do, the you know, 50 city listening tour with our tax pros, et cetera. Yep. Yep. No, yep. no one talked to me about taxes. Hmm. What became really clear was, you know, this, this brand is about restoring financial confidence to Main Street America. Hmm. We operate in, you know, thousands of local communities. We're the pillar of many local communities. And we are the number two online software company for DIY. So taxes are really an important part of what we do. We also do small dollar lending. We also have financial products like debit cards. We have two and a half million small business owners who are clients for taxes or bookkeeping or payroll or other things. And so we see ourselves, you know, kind of squarely in the financial services world, but serving a part of the a part of America that needs help and turns to us to build that financial confidence every single year. You know, it's it's interesting because when you think about the conversations you have with certain people in your life, uh, some of them are quite personal. Like if you talk to, if you work with a lawyer, um, but your accountant, right? Like when I talk to my accountant about financial issues and tax issues, there's a lot of personal stuff there, you know, I'm and I'm kind of, it's almost like talking to a priest or a, uh, right, or a therapist. It's, it's uh, you're really kind of go, going through certain decisions and talking about certain things and um, is this the right way to do to go and what do you think? And, you know, there's a lot of trust that you place in that person. Um, but when people just file online, you you kind of lose that, right? You you're not um, you're not getting that personal interaction, whether it's by phone or or face to face. Is that is that a place where H and R Block has an advantage over you know purely software based tax preparers? We think we do. You know, we we talk about it as our human advantage, and it's very much how we view our role in the world. You know, if if, so if you just take a step back, there are 150 million people in America that pay taxes every year, and about 55% of them get help. About 45% do taxes themselves. So in the U.S., the majority of people today in the digital world that we're in still turn to somebody for help. And the reason why, and if you just think about it as people, it makes intuitive sense, most people say... I want to get everything I deserve, and I'm afraid I'll get in trouble if I get it wrong. And that's why people turn for help. And so what we're doing now is, if you're a DIY filer, it used to be you only had two choices, either you know come get help or good luck, do it yourself. And now we're introducing products, we call it online assist. So bringing human help to people, whether they're DIY filers or they come to an office, is really how we think we can leverage the 80,000 person network of experts we have. We did a survey recently to DIY filers and 40% of them said, I know I'm making mistakes when I do my taxes. I just don't know where the mistakes are. Yeah. And so we know that people need help and that's what we're trying to bring. So Jeff, right now you and and every single leader of a big or a small organization, I mean even me, we're finding ourselves in a very different world, right? We're all we're all crisis managers all of a sudden overnight, right? I mean, you are working from home. You're talking to me from from home right now. 
um, instead of in the studio with me. And, and, you know, we're all figuring out how to work with our teams remotely, how to keep our businesses running, how to, how to do everything, because there's no playbook for this. I mean, I, I mean, I guess there is a playbook, 1918, but I mean, the world was very different back then, right? So for, first of all, I mean, the tax filing deadline has been extended, right, in nationally and in, in most states. Um, so tell me a little bit about like how you, like, how will you deal with this? How do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? Yeah. Yeah. This isn't about the company. You know, what I have to do, what I think what all leaders have to do right now is we have to make the best decisions possible with information changing hourly and know that not everybody will feel heard or satisfied. And that's what makes leadership in a crisis so hard because you have to make decisions, you have to keep moving forward. So for us, what that's meant is you know we know that about 80% of our clients get a refund so our availability is vital to get dollars flowing back into the economy but we also know it can't be business as usual so we've had to put in place an unprecedented set of benefits to help our associates if they can't work or are unable to work or they're impacted by the coronavirus we have moved our tax offices nationwide to be primarily a drop-off model. In some cities, exclusively a drop-off model, and in some cities, we've closed. We're encouraging people to use our virtual products. Um, so essentially, what we're trying to do is you know, follow all the guidelines we're all following to keep people healthy and try to make sure we're not cutting off people's access to refunds all at the same time. And yeah. we're making decisions daily, and we won't make perfect ones every single day. Um, you are, like many other leaders, finding yourself in a very new leadership role, um, essentially overseeing a company remotely. Yes. And the company that is um, going to be dealing with many, many uh, financial collapses. Um, how does your sort of leadership approach, right, and philosophy, um, everything that you've learned over, over the course of your career, you've got to muster all of it now yeah. to um, lead in a, a completely new way. What guides you? What do you sort of, what is the philosophy that you kind of lean on or think about or consider as you, you know, enter these uncharted waters? You know, it, it obviously weighs on every leader right now trying to figure this out. I, I rely as best I can on we at H&R Block call connected leadership. And what that means is it's about transparency. It's about trust. It's about speed, uh, sharing of information. And so even when it's a hard message, I've just found the more I can say it and people can hear it directly, it's really the only thing I know how to do. That's Jeff Jones. He's the president and CEO of H&R Block. Jeff spoke to me from his home in Kansas City. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built-It Productions.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.